A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join me today. I want to mention that my show is brought to you in part by great sponsors like the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'll be talking more about them coming up in a few moments. Also, I want to welcome the Jeff Staples team at ERA Brokers Consolidated. If you are within the sound of my voice anywhere within the state of Utah and you're looking for real estate, boy, does it sound like a lot of people are looking for real estate. I want you to very strongly consider getting a hold of my friend Jeff Staples and the uh, Jeff Staples team at ERA Brokers Consolidated. Can I have some more information about him as well? Welcome to sponsorship on the show. I, I want you to know I'm, I'm picky. I'm choosy. I will only recommend people to you that I believe will take care of you. And, and sometimes that means turning away sponsorship money but if i if i don't believe that uh, that they'll take good care of you i can't in good conscience recommend them to you and after all it's uh, my credibility that's on the line as well so take that for what it's worth anyway thanks for joining us let's engage in some wrong things shall we huh? roll up your sleeves take off your shoes pull up a chair here we go i have something i'm going to save toward the end of the show uh, only because it's this is probably the most conspiratorial thing that I will engage in today, and I don't want to. I don't want anybody's eyes to glaze over too early on. I don't want to, you know, turn anybody off. But I want to talk to you. I want to share with you an, an article by Mike Whitney, BLM's War on the Deplorables. Now we're talking Black Lives Matter, and it's a fascinating article. I don't know if this is gospel truth or not, but there appears to be enough plausibility. I think it's worth at least examining what he has to say. And again, we'll do that in the fourth segment of the show. In the meantime, let's get on to a couple other things. In uh, in my home state of Utah, the governor has just extended, again, the state of emergency. It's a big surprise, right? Not too many people are like, oh, no, we didn't even see that coming. That rigid control, those federal dollars that are attached to states of emergency have to be sustained. And I want to share with you a commentary from from John Tamney, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, this is not specifically about Utah, but I think he correctly identifies some of the motives and some of the incentives that are, that are at stake here. Why would authorities continue to keep pushing this narrative that, oh, we're in a terrible emergency? You know, I mean, it, here in my state of Utah last week, I think there were two days where um, new cases so the media tells us, of COVID, there were over a 1,000 new cases for two consecutive days. But they tell us nothing about what those cases mean. Does this mean there were a 1,000 positive tests? So we talked about in the last hour, there's a, there's a false positive concern that a lot of people are expressing about tests. So maybe it's not all of the truth. But even then, are the hospitals being overwhelmed? Because we're certainly not hearing any stories like that. We're not hearing about people dying in unusual numbers. Oh, and just a little bit earlier today, I shared this on uh, on Facebook as well as on the Brian Hyde Show Facebook page. CNN is now reporting. These are numbers from the CDC itself. 
COVID poses a risk. Uh, the risk of dying of COVID is less than 1% as long as you're under 70 years of age. Which is pretty much what people have been saying since March of this year. All right, back on track. John Tamney, his article, Be Serious, You Don't Solve Lockdowns with More Central Planning. He says to read the lofty coronavirus relief proposals from Democrats and Republicans is to detect confusion about what powers economic growth. In other words, neither side gets it. Up front, no one seems to have asked a simple question. Was anyone calling for Congress and the president to craft a stimulus program in February? Well, he says the question answers itself. No one was looking for economic relief simply because it wasn't needed. So why now? Why the call for Congress to spend with abandon? This question similarly answers itself, but for those still half awake, politicians on the city, state, and national levels imposed lockdowns on economic activity beginning in March. Yes, you read that right. Even though economic growth has long been the greatest enemy of virus, disease, and ill health more broadly, politicians decided that the answer to the coronavirus was to force an economic contraction that destroyed tens of millions of jobs, millions of businesses, and that otherwise created economic desperation. Historians will marvel at the matchless stupidity of the U.S., the political class. They actually disappointed us this time, which is saying something. Even though wealth creation has long expanded the resources necessary for scientists and doctors to cure disease and elongate life, Politicians decided in 2020 to freeze wealth creation, given their belief that Americans are too stupid to avoid sickness and death on their own. Translated for those still half awake, your political leaders think you're intensely dumb, so much so that you're incapable of protecting yourself without politicians forcing you to do just that. But to make sure you would stay at home, they imposed job and business destroying lockdowns that kind of gave you no choice. Now, John Tamney says, don't worry, the insults to common sense didn't stop with the economic contraction politicians forced on what was previously the world's most dynamic economy. Having wrecked millions of lives and businesses, they proceeded to extract trillions more from the economy, only to blindly throw money at their countless errors. Yes, you read that right. The instigators of misery somehow got it into their heads that they were the ones who should deliver you from it. It would be funny if it weren't so sad. And he says, wake up, people. There's no such thing as government spending. There's only politicized allocation of precious resources first created in the private sector. Governments can't stimulate economic activity. Nor can they offer relief simply because they only have wealth to redistribute insofar as it was first created in the private sector. Governments can only move previously created wealth from one set of pockets to another. Politicized allocation of precious wealth is a consequence of economic growth, not an instigator of it. The relief proposals promoted by left and right will in no way generate new economic activity. He says, in truth, the trillions Congress is set to spend will logically delay recovery. Simple as that. It's sad that something so basic requires explanation, but we're living in a time of remarkable confusion within the policy establishment. Since we are... John Tamney says it's useful to remind readers that central planning failed in miserable, murderous fashion 
in the 20th century. In the 20th, politicians around the world tried their hand at command and control economic planning that placed those same politicians in control of the economy's resources. It didn't work. And it didn't because with government spending, there is no failure. Instead, there's relentless spending on what doesn't work. If government oversaw Silicon Valley, Friendster, Webvan, and the Globe, would Globe.com rather would still be in business. What's innovative and a magnet for the best and the brightest would be backwards and bereft of talent. What makes the Valley, meaning Silicon Valley, great is that bad ideas die and do so quickly. This means that lousy businesses and witless managers are limited in their ability to waste precious resources. Now contrast this with government. Government, as a rule, relentlessly throws good money at bad. The Tennessee Valley Authority still exists. So does Amtrak. Citigroup has been bailed out five times in the last 30 years by politicians. He says economic growth is a consequence of intrepid allocation of limited resources to higher and higher uses. Economic growth is about investment in wealth that doesn't yet exist. By contrast, governments can only fund the known or what's already known as a bust. If what's a bust employs people, politicians will fund it forever. Medicare began as a $3 billion program. It's rushing toward $1 trillion annually, even though it still can't meet its mandate more than 50 years after its creation. The politicized allocation of precious resources that some naively refer to as government spending or economic relief is the process whereby Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump are handed control over the nation's or the economy's resources so that Jeff Bezos, Fred Smith, and Phil Knight have fewer resources to push to higher uses. Politicized allocation of resources is not the path just to stasis, but to decline. Central planning that failed in total in the 20th century doesn't succeed when it's tried on a limited basis in the 21st. What didn't work then still doesn't work now. Politicians can't play investor, period. Stated simply, the economy's weak because politicians imposed command and control lockdowns, and having done that, they poured gasoline on a fire of their own making with trillions more in spending. Let's not vandalize common sense with more of what's already failed. The only economic relief, he says, is an end to the lockdowns. Again, this is John Tamney, a piece published first on Real Clear Markets, then on the American Institute for Economic Re- Re- Research, that is. Look for it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And welcome to our newest sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. I want to welcome the Jeff Staples team at ERA Brokers Consolidated. Look, the uh, the housing market is moving very fast. If you have been shopping for a home, you understand. Real estate is, it's crazy. I'm actually thinking about having Jeff come on sometime and talk to us about why this is happening. But I want you to know, in that fast-paced market... 
there's nothing more important than having somebody who will uh, not only work with you in a very honest and transparent manner, but who's experienced and knows exactly what they're doing. And this is why Jeff Staples is the guy I want to point you toward. And this is good for anybody here in within the sound of my voice in the, in the state of Utah. He is with ERA, ERA Brokers, dedicated to helping his clients have a very enjoyable experience while, while negotiating what is usually the most complicated purchase that any of us will ever make, that being a home. And with over 13 years of sales and negotiating experience, I want you to rest assured that uh, Jeff will help you sell for more and buy for less. If you want to get a hold of him, two ways you can do it. Go to his website, jeffstaplesrealestate.com. Again, that's jeffstaplesrealestate.com. Or you can call 435-619-0189. I'm recommending you do the uh, website because the phone number's there as well. But uh, jump on that. He'll help you out. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Rob, good to hear from you, man. Yeah, good to, good to listen to your show. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I just can't imagine people, you know, putting on all these masks and they're listening to people that have conveniently made themselves millions of dollars all on the backs of us and and our children by mortgaging this whole country and i, I just don't understand why people are just giving in to this and you know, putting on these masks walking around like it's it's amazing i i can't believe it i just why can't people see it? what you're talking about how these people don't generate money. It's the private sector. Yep. They can only take from the ones who've actually produced something of value. And, and that's why I always, everyone said, you know, I, I always listen to these guys saying, oh, corporate welfare, they have, some of these people need to see what is put into running a corporation and see how many hours and how much headache it takes to do it. And then you'll see how much welfare you really think you're getting. But but yeah, let's let's be let's be fair though, there is such a thing as corporate welfare, and I'm talking like the bailouts, you know, G, sure. GM and the banks and so forth. If if you're a part one, if you're one of those favored sectors that's in bed with government, oh yeah, you're never going to fail because they'll continue to pump taxpayer money taken from the productive people, you know, into a poorly performing or mismanaged sector of the economy. Well, that money could have been put into productive sectors. Well, I agree with you there, a hundred percent on that. I, I'm not a fan of any kind of bailout. But I'm talking about when people, you know, talk about tax write-offs that corporations get and stuff. You know, these people put these laws in place not only for the corporations, but for themselves as well. You know, these, these politicians. Yep. So don't be fooled by what they... You think Joe Biden doesn't have a few businesses on the side? where he's getting very lucrative write-offs in that business, you need to think again. You know what I would love to hear? Just once. And then I could probably die a happy man. I would just once like to hear a politician, or maybe even a group of politicians, step up to a microphone at a press conference and say, we're sorry. We were wrong. We embraced the wrong policy, or we did the wrong thing. We're sorry. We're going to do what we can to make you whole, but we were wrong. I think I'll live, like to to a, I'll live to a ripe old age if I'm waiting for that day to come. I would like to hear them say, we were wrong for stealing from you. Exactly, because yes. That's, that's what the deep state is. They're just a bunch of people that are in government, and they're just trying to make sure that they get 
everything put in their direction. That's what these fights are all about. That's why I was listening to Chris this morning talking about how the states send money back to the Fed. That is the dumbest thing we've ever ever do for states is to send money back to the federal government and then go back and try to get it. He's 100 percent right on that. One of the, we, 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 we don't get the same amount back. That machine needs to be fed. That is the biggest a middleman waste of money I've ever seen. Yep. States need to keep their own money. It, it shouldn't be going. The federal government should be paid on productivity. Or, for better yet, go do tariffs. Like you're, it's in the Constitution. Commerce overseas. Or, and there's another alternative, too. It could be restricted down to its intended size of minimal but limited government, and then it wouldn't even cost, you know, a, a, maybe a fifth of what we're paying today. I mean, people just don't understand what $27 trillion really means. No. It's we're too, done. Too, too big to comprehend. Well, it, I mean, the, the mathematics is in the negatives now. So there's no way for us to produce enough to pay that debt off on an annual basis, even to service the interest now. It's over. How are we going to get out of this thing now? Bankruptcy. We're going to have to claim bankruptcy. Or just and keep... the people that got us, the, the people that got us there, are the ones that need to be held accountable. Agreed. But they'll just keep kicking that can down the road, and then it's our kids and it's our grandkids that'll be born into debt that they had no say whatsoever in in taking on. I mean, we're already there. We're we're, we're enslaved ourselves right now, and, and it, that's exactly true. The buying power. You can see it already. I mean, look at the price of a home yeah. now. Yeah. For your kids to be able to go out and buy a buy a house, you know, the debt is too. It, it, it's it, we lost our buying power. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I I appreciate your show and you're a good man. And I also put that on Facebook the uh, the um, thing about the. The unlikable thinker. What was that? I, the I wrong thinkers? <laughs> the wrongful thinker. That's what I yes. put on there. I love it. That's the way we got to be. We have to be wrongful thinkers, and we got to let people know that it is okay to be a wrongful thinker. Absolutely. Rob, thanks, care, thanks for weighing in today. He, he said a word that I think uh, needs to be, be highlighted here. He talked about enslavement. And I know that's tricky territory. Well, aren't we having riots over slavery in our past? And that's why, you know, where everybody's so angry. But think about that. Think about kids, grandkids, generations yet to be born, being born into a debt that they have to assume. They have to work to pay off a part of their income, a part of their lives will be taken from them in order to service that debt. And they had absolutely no say whatsoever in whether or not to take on that debt. I don't see how that could be anything but a form of slavery. And for those who would argue, well, it's a good form of slavery, I, you know, let's let's get the, all the sophistry right out there on the table. How? How is that a good thing? You know, this is nothing new, by the way. Thomas Jefferson saw this coming a long time ago. He wrote in a letter to a friend of his about... Uh, um, maybe it was a letter to James Madison. He talked about earth is for the living. And specifically, he spoke of how how immoral it would be to saddle generations that would come after you with a debt for which you received all the benefit for the money you borrowed, but you leave it to them to pay. 
It's immensely immoral. And at some point it's going to stop. I just don't know when or how. But I have a hunch that it's probably not going to be real pleasant for all of us. We're all going to feel some pain whenever the correction finally gets around to taking place. The way things are shaping up, mm, that may be sooner than later. I know I'm just full of good news today. My apologies. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about witchcraft, leprosy and COVID. The power to harm as a political weapon. This is an excellent essay from Stacy Rudin. Pick this up off the American Institute for Economic Research email that landed in my inbox earlier today. It's really good stuff. And if you wonder why is it that the police would fine or arrest people simply for going to work or looking at the sunset during a lockdown or where people would feel good about yelling at strangers, you're not wearing a mask. It's because we've weaponized that power to harm. Details are coming up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us as we revel in wrong think. I have this marvelous article from Stacy Rudin about uh, the power to harm as a political weapon. We have seen this played out, and it's being played out even as I speak, by various leaders at various levels, and it's it's very effective. Why would somebody yell at a total stranger? Why aren't you wearing your mask when they see them in the store? Especially if they're actually wearing a mask themselves. It's because they've been trained to believe that person may be causing you harm. They have potential to harm you, the power to harm you, by virtue of the fact that they're not breathing through a mask. And you think this is, well, maybe that's something you'd see in some, you know, really nutty, you know, place where there's lots of, you know, hardcore left-wing authoritarians. No. No, I see it right here in my own, uh, you know, area of operation. And it's, it's sad. Here's what Stacey Rudin has to say. She says, the COVID pandemic is mired in questions of responsibility and blame. In the heat of panic, we've all abandoned our, all of our prior behaviors and assumptions surrounding communicable diseases, instantly replacing them with a propaganda-driven new morality. In the ultimate switcheroo, instead of assuming personal responsibility for our own health, we are now encouraged to blame others for hurting us if they refuse to fundamentally alter their lives in order to protect us. We ask them to give up everything they hold dear, up to and including constitutional freedoms, means of making a living and educating children, to participate in a concerted effort to stop infections which shall continue indefinitely. And she says this is the perfect formula for achieving total control over a society. Everyone is blaming everyone else for external behaviors. Social disapproval eliminates the need for police enforcement with a targeted goal of perfect compliance. This was set in motion when the government made a bald, difficult-to-disprove assertion. Together, we can stop death. And a built-in dissent-silencing mechanism, we are trying to save lives, so anyone who disagrees with us is a killer. How convenient. Do as we say, or be condemned. Stacy Rudin says the resulting silence makes it impossible to determine how many people genuinely believe in the merits of the system and how many participate purely out of fear and shame. 
She says if history is any indication, this system will perpetuate itself until a critical mass gathers the courage to resist it. What our silenced population was not thinking about during the fearful spring of 2020 was the fact that alleged insidious, non-disprovable abilities to harm have been used as political tools for centuries. Powerful governments and special interests know that people tend to associate risks and dangers such as illness, natural disaster, and famine with conduct that transgresses societal norms. When people believe that better behavior can remedy a threat, they work hard to force that behavior on everyone. Cultural theory teaches us that this predictable response to threats can be used to promote certain social structures, both by imbuing a society's members with aversions to subversive behavior and by focusing resentment and blame on those who defy such institutions. Political targets can be, and often are, entrapped by the framing of a behavior as good and safe, or another as bad and unsafe. So in 2020, lockdown was framed as safe, and Sweden's mitigation approach as unsafe. But she says, before we analyze the outcome, let's consider the historic uses of witchcraft and leprosy in the same manner. Both involve an alleged invisible ability to harm, which is impossible to disprove, culminating in near-perfect control over society. Whether the witch is really able to harm or not, whether the person is really infectious or not, the attribution of a hidden power to hurt is a weapon of attack against them. Attributions of occult injury and hidden infection informally entrench the hierarchy of social categories and warn well-placed persons against indiscriminate social intercourse. The accusation can be completely outrageous. It will be credible, essentially, if the political system on whose behalf it is made is accepted. Now, she says, with the benefit of hindsight, we know innocent women burned at the stake in Massachusetts were persecuted. They suffered an appalling fate. But at the same time, the whole of society went along with the narrative that they had supernatural powers, they could harm enemies at a whim, and insidiously that they needed to be destroyed for the sake of the community. Their condemnations were based on post hoc ergo proper hoc circular reasoning. Harm occurred, therefore witchcraft caused it. In one example, the death of a child occasioned the condemnation of his disagreeable grandmother. The evidence, the evidence against her consisted of human feces discovered at the top of a palm tree. Because women generally didn't climb trees and certainly cannot perch on top as necessary to defecate, her accusers argued she must have supernatural powers since she did it. In the prevailing cultural environment, this was considered a more reasonable explanation than I did not, in fact, defecate in the treetop. The woman was banished. Now, not everyone in the unfortunate woman's community would have believed she was guilty as charged. Many probably knew her to be a good and kind person and hated to see her treated this way. Perhaps most went along seeking foremost to avoid becoming the next victim of the unjust system. This ever-present threat of accusation and the impossibility of proving innocence is an ingenious, ingenious means, rather, for the ruling class to maintain control. And she goes on to point out how leprosy was used similarly. Archaeologists now know that many or that the alleged widespread leprosy epidemics were largely not leprosy at all. In fact, many lepers had non-contagious skin ailments or other innocuous health problems. One can imagine the ever-present threat members of these societies lived under when a simple rash could condemn a disfavored person. Conforming submissive behavior is not difficult to understand under these circumstances. Stay in favor, do exactly what I say, or your next bout of rosacea will be your demise. 
And Stacey Rudin points out these same dynamics are being exploited by politicians and symbiotic special interest during COVID-19 at the expense of innocent civilians. Our constitutional rights and privileges as basic as educating our children have been suspended on the premise that we pose a threat to others. We're treated like children and told we must behave, just as the government says, for the safety of everyone. And by the way, she says this would sound very familiar to the residents of Salem, Massachusetts, and certain leper colonies. Even though we are completely healthy, we are forced to make incredible sacrifices in service of stopping the invisible enemy. It's unsafe to open your restaurant. It's unsafe to educate your children. It's unsafe for you to walk past me with an exposed face. Just six months ago, these restrictions on freedom would have been unthinkable to the average American. Yet today, they are the prevailing normal. Non-conforming behavior occasions averted eyes at best, open hostility at worst. And these assertions are obviously outrageous in light of the dazzling example of Sweden. It has the lowest per capita mortality for 2020 than it did on this date in 2015. Yet they're widely accepted because they are part of the political zeitgeist. We don't know how many people genuinely agree that livelihood destruction and educational deprivation are justified and acceptable. We just know that most people are afraid to oppose them for fear of appearing reckless to human life. Whether the person is really infectious or not, the attribution of a hidden power to hurt is a weapon of attack against them. And people don't want to be attacked. They'd rather fall in line than stick out their necks. This is why witches burned, lepers were banished, and school children spend their days alone in front of screens. Our ingrained tendencies are still just as subject to exploitation as they were in 1693. A formidable political weapon indeed. And while science did not allow Salemites and lepers to disprove their alleged power to harm, in 2020, we can exculpate ourselves with one simple, easy-to-understand scientific fact one that is as well established as gravity, all epidemics end with herd immunity and not before. Herd immunity is the natural singular endpoint to every viral epidemic, and we will all get there eventually, whether via natural infections like Sweden or a combination of natural infections and vaccination. Imperial College in London said as much in the March 16, 2020 model that influenced world governments into locking down. So do we want our epidemic now or later? These are our choices. We cannot change the size of our epidemic, but only the timing. And she says the only way to minimize mortality is by letting the low risk expose themselves to the virus while the higher risk temporarily reduce mobility. This indisputable scientific fact debunks the allegation that anyone has an insidious ability to harm that threatens other people. Stacy Rudin says we may be infectious. But an infection in us and the consenting people with whom we mingle is beneficial since it reduces the time to herd immunity for the whole of society. With this simple return to science, we can neutralize the potent political and psychological weapon deployed against us. We can abandon the devastating system of tyranny and blame imposed on us via COVID propaganda, replacing it with our healthier habitual American system of personal responsibility and above all else, freedom. I can't see a single thing she said here that I could disagree with. Check it out for yourself. Witchcraft, leprosy, and COVID, power to harm as political weapon. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back with our final segment right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Oh, boy, I must have been way too long-winded in the earlier segments because I got a lot of territory to cover right about now. All right, well, let's get to it. Um, I know you have looked around if you live in the western United States and thought, man, there's a lot of smoke in the air. And like me, maybe you've had the, the sense, boy, this is the worst year ever for fires. Why, this must be the worst year ever in recorded history we've had this many fires. See a lot of different uh, graphics being shared on social media. But if I were to tell you forest fires aren't at historic highs in the United States, not even close, what would your reaction be? I'm asking this because John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has actually done a remarkable analysis here, which shows California's wildfires are a serious matter. But the official record of the United States shows forest fires in the U.S. today are far below the annual average in the 1930s and 40s. I'm not going to take the time to read the article, but uh, or at least to, to share the article here on the show. But I would encourage you go to the show notes at the com, and you'll see it by the numbers. How much U.S. forest area has burned from 1926 to 2017? It ain't even close. Definitely worth reading. And again, kudos to John Miltimore for, uh, for, for, for pointing this out. It's that whole availability bias that's at work here. Well, I see smoke in the air and I see lots of stories about fires. And therefore, my perception is they must be far worse and more widespread than I've ever, ever considered. But they're not. So take hope. Take hope, rather. All right, second story. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but uh, the headline really pulled me in. What kind of school will help your kids to be happily married? You ever think of that? Well, you know, we want our kids to be happily married, so we better consider their schooling. This is by Michael Cook. It was published on intellectualtakeout.org, and it talks about the debate over the merits of private schools versus public schools and how oftentimes that debate is all about the, the relative success in test scores and graduation rates, college admissions. He says, you know, it comes down to which are more successful in giving kids the skills they need to thrive in today's economy. But he says utilitarian questions like these frame most contemporary discussions of the value of private versus public education. Here's a novel thought for you, though. What if there's more to life than excelling at school and work? What about fomenting women and men of good character, good citizens, good spouses and parents? Because civic and character formation are key educational priorities for most Americans. And his article goes through what the findings were of a number of different organizations who look at the schools and see they're more than just classrooms. They're also moral communities. They help put kids on one kind of civic or family path or another, whether they intend to or not. They inculcate students to abide by specific norms, values, practices, and habits, as well as situate them within specific peer influences and social networks. In the end, schools form students into a particular kind of person with one kind of character or another. Different types of schooling influence a variety of character-related outcomes, including the odds that students become enmeshed in the criminal justice system. 
also their level of civic engagement and the moral obligations they feel towards their neighbors. Now, it's a pretty detailed article, lots of good information here. And he says the striking feature of the report that he writes about here is that it poses questions which are seldom raised in the media. What kind of schooling creates the most valuable human capital? What kind of schooling prepares children to be generous, hardworking, competent spouses and parents? In the end, isn't that the most important outcome? For what shall it profit a man if he scores 1600 on the SAT and end life divorced, unhappy and lonely? That's pretty powerful. And I think it's it's not misplaced in the least. All right. Let me get to this other article. This is the one I've really been saving the best for last. The BLM's War on the Deplorables. That's Black Lives Matter's War on the Deplorables. This is by Mike Whitney, who says, let's assume Black Lives Matter is not a social justice movement, but a corporate sponsored public relations vehicle that's being used to advance the agenda of elites. Is that too much of a stretch? And he says, let's say that the massive protests that erupted across the country were not random or spontaneous events, as some people seem to think, but part of a broader strategy to control the headlines by shifting the dominant narrative to race. The death of George Floyd fits perfectly with this broader strategy, as the incident took place six months before the general election, which conveniently gave the Democrats enough time to mount an effective attack on Trump using an issue on which they feel he is particularly vulnerable race was it all a coincidence he says maybe or maybe not but it's certainly worth investigating just as we've endured three and a half years of relentless fabrications connected to the russia gate scam so the idea that this latest headline grabbing fiasco might be well fake is certainly within the realm of possibility so he says let's see if we can figure out why wealthy elites and their giant charitable organizations would choose to dump millions of dollars into an organization that claims to be marxist could be that, number one, they are committed, gen- they are genuinely committed to social justice for black people. Or they think that racist cops are the number one problem facing black people today. Do they think the massive protests are raising consciousness, which will have a transformative effect on the country? Or do they simply need a flashy social justice organization like BLM to divert attention from widening inequality, spiraling unemployment, ballooning poverty, shrinking growth, and the savage restructuring of the economy that's creating a permanent underclass, forced to scrape by at food banks, homeless shelters, and tent cities that are sprouting up across the country, but which are religiously ignored by our prostitute media. He says, if you chose number four, you guessed right. Now, he goes into a lot of detail here on uh, where... Well, first of all, he talks about what is going on with Black Lives Matters and points out that in the end, in his analysis, they're a non-governmental organization which provides services to its members and to its patrons. And like many NGOs, they have won the public's trust, which makes them a useful proxy for stakeholders who remain largely in the shadows. And who would those contributors be? Well, George Soros's Open Society Institute has donated to them. The Open Societies Foundation, funded by... Uh, by George Soros in 1993, also the Center for American Progress, founded by former White House Chief of Staff and Hillary Clinton campaign chair John Podesta in 2003. Also the Ford Foundation, and you know there, there's more to this, but what makes me wonder about this is I want you to listen closely to this audio clip. This is Newt Gingrich on Fox News. Listen to what happens when he brings up George Soros. Listen to this. 
look, the number one problem in almost all these cities is George Soros elected left-wing, anti-police, pro-criminal district attorneys who refuse to pe keep people locked up. Uh, just yesterday, they put somebody back on the street who's wanted for two different murders in New York City. Uh, you cannot solve this problem, and both Harris and Biden have talked very proudly about what they call progressive district attorneys. Progressive district attorneys are anti-police, pro-criminal, and overwhelmingly elected with George Soros' money, and they're a major cause of the violence we're seeing because they keep putting the violent criminals back on the street. I'm not sure we need to bring George Soros into this. I was going to say you get the last word, he Speaker. He, he, he paid for it. I mean, why can't we discuss the fact that millions no, of he dollars didn't. he spent? I, I agree with well, Melissa. George Soros doesn't need to be a part of this conversation. Listen okay. to this awkward silence. Awkward silence. So it's verboten. All right. We're going to. More awkward science. Silence, rather. And. Okay. We're going to move on. Wow. That's Fox News. They didn't want to talk. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So I'm not suggesting, therefore, the conspiracy holds. It's, I'm just saying, isn't that odd that a news organization would be so, <gasps> we can't go there. I'm going to link to the article. You can find it in the show notes again at the Uh Probably the most damning evidence comes from the World Socialist website. Black Lives Matter cashes in on capitalism. And it really does sound like Black Lives Matter is a cog in a much bigger corporate, political, elitist machine. And it sounds like they're being used to fragment and suppress the emerging populist movement that supports Trump's nationalism over the Democrats' globalism. You can draw your own conclusions, but to the bottom line here, at least according to Mike Whitney, is he says, BLM is largely an invention of ruling class elites to divert attention from the collapsing economy and the unprecedented human catastrophe that will follow shortly after the election. And that plan involves shifting attention to divisive racing is racial issues rather that put working people at each other's throats while concealing the vicious class war being prosecuted behind the shield of a fake social justice movement. He says it's all part of the war on the deplorables. Like I say, I don't know if this is God's truth, but it's definitely plausible. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.